Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, 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 hello. I'm Gary Bain and this week... Hang on, this week... Hang on, Gary. I heard a strange voice. That's not strange. Of time hiding in the background. We've got a real treat this week, Pete. What is uh, it? I'm here with the uh, with the lovely Peter Hart, but we're joined by the even lovelier Dave O'Mara, who doesn't like to be called David. He doesn't. Oh, he doesn't. Now, now, one thing that I think we've got to start with is that, uh, of course, David is a, a Dave. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I knew you'd do start. that. He's <laughs> a prominent, a prominent, well-known historian. But uh, the thing that, as I gave, you won't be able to look at him, punters on the on the internet. But we could see pictures of him, and actually got a lot of hair, Gary. Yeah, but it is a wig. It's definitely a wig. Oh, oh he's tugging it now. Oh, he's come off. <laughs> How embarrassing! Tugging. Well, don't like to be tug off and come off on uh, camera usually. Anyway, oh, we all like it. Got it on the audio. Now, <laughs> just for those uh, that don't know. Um, Dave has been charged with writing the Pen and Sword series of Battleground Song books dealing with the Fen- bleh, French um, contribution the to the 1916 battles. And he may be better known uh, to uh, readers from his internet presence under the name of uh, Croonart. Why Croonart, Dave? You don't want to know. Really? Seriously, I do want to know now, but all right. <laughs> so there's a dark and mysterious se- se- secret in his past. Now, well, actually, I, I will tell you. It's the clean version of it is the fact that uh, I was a uh, family friend of uh, Andre Beckhart many, many years ago. And basically, he used to babysit for me while my parents went shopping when I was a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> Right, that makes no so, sense whatsoever to me. So now, that's not that. Well, he used to run the uh, Crinot One Museum. All oh, right, now oh, it, right. Now, now it does make many, sense. many many years ago, and it sort of takes you back to your childhood uh, experiences under his. Uh, I was needing a name, and I wanted one which was different, which people could find awkward to spell, etc. So, like Dave, I don't get bombarded with spam. Uh, Dave. Now, uh, the book that we're centering on uh, is a very good book. I remember reviewing it, reading it and reviewing it. And that was the Somme 1916 touring the French sector, Battleground Somme. And that was under David O'Mara. Yes, that's my official Sunday name. 
Now, uh, what we're going to do is talk through the French on the Somme. This is an outline discussion, isn't it, Gary? Because we know bugger all about it. And that in a, that is going to form part of the discussion, uh, Dave, in the fact that British don't seem to care or acknowledge the enormous role of the French on the Somme. So that's one thing we're going to be doing. Um, now, the um, so, so where should we start? One thing I'd like your opinions, and like in the book, it starts. Can you give us an idea of the state of the French army in 1916? Well, 1914, then 1916. Obviously, we had the catastrophic defeat of uh, 1871. And then the following 10 years was full of political and material basically arguments between top brass. Uh, there, there was also a lot of advances in technology at the time. I mean, the French were trying to get in, pu push themselves into the 20th century before everybody else. We had the uh, worry of the rise of the German Empire. I don't think they really looked towards Britain as much as, apart from the Navy, as uh, much of a threat. But uh, Germany was definitely there on in, in the back of the mind all the time. So they were pushing forward with the smokeless powder for the uh, ammunition on the rifles, etc. But as soon as that came out, other nations started doing the same thing, so it's obsolete. Uniforms and things, they try to uh, push forward with different types of colour schemes, etc. There was a, even a version of uh, field grey that they were experimenting with by the turn of the 20th century. Uh, but the, the French general public didn't really want to play. They said that uh, the red trousers, for example, was part of France. Uh, the government ministers who could have been pushing the uh, changes through just weren't interested because uh, they didn't want to go against public opinion. Now, one the thing they, they did get ahead on was with the artillery. Well, I'm not sure it's ahead, but very famously, they did develop a, 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 a particularly good field gun or yeah the quick firing 75 yeah. yeah that was what one of the aspects that they were working on it's the, it was one of their mainstay lighter field weaponry all the way through to the second world war so it was very very advanced when that came out at the uh end of the 19th century so it was that they were working on machine guns grenades grenades was another one of the aspects that they worked on i mean the french army was the only one to start the second the first world war with uh a full range of grenades, even chemical grenades. Blimey, I didn't so, know that. They were very much a continental army, weren't they, Dave? And they, they operated a, a system of conscription, didn't they? Yes, they sort of copied that off the Germans who uh, adapted that before the Franco-German War of 1870. Can you give us an outline of it? You know, Yeah, on the second half of the Franco-German War, where we're talking after Sedan up to the end of the fighting, they were the, one of the first to conscript a complete um, citizen army, for want of a better word, where they had general conscription and they were called up into the uh, mobile units and quickly trained, thrown into battle. But that was continued from 1872 when they did uh, when they introduced national conscription across across the board. At first, it started off it was uh, on a ballot system, but then there were several changes before the. First World War started. Uh, the last of one, the last of them being, if memory recall, rolls course correctly, about 1912, 1913. And uh, they were called up at the age of 20, but they were usually about 21 years old when they went in. They'd have 
so many years. It starts off with five years and it eventually dropped down to three years as uh, regular service, then 10 years in the reserves, 14 in various territorials, territorials then dropping into the territorial reserves. So there was France was a very, very, by 1914, France had a hell of a lot of people who had military service. They'd also seen a lot of action, especially in the colonial wars over in uh, North Africa and even in the Far East by that particular point. So there's a lot of experience and practically every male under the age of, say, 45 knew how to handle the current weaponry because the main mainstay French rifle at the time, the Labelle uh, Model 1886, had come out since 1886. So anybody who'd been in since, since that particular year knew how to fire the, the latest weapon that uh, the French military was issued with. No. <laughs> same with the artillery. They had the same guns. They had the same weapons for decades. Now, when when the war started, there's uh, there's the Battle of the Frontiers. Now, we did a whole podcast on this. Yes, so, yeah. uh, the the only thing we can really want to say, other than to invite, invite people to listen to that, is that the casualties were particularly awful. Uh, I think it was uh, August twenty second, twenty seven thousand dead, which means an awful lot of wounded as well. Um, um, what but what state was the uh, the French army in, if you like? Uh, by 1916, because um, it had shrunk. As a, in one sense, it, it ended up being four million two hundred thousand, but then it sort of shrinks back with casualties and the, the the return of key industrial agricultural workers, and it ends up at about two two and a half million or two two million two hundred thirty five thousand. Now, what what's how how has it responded to the challenges of 1914 and 15? Well, one of the first things they did by the end of 1914 was to uh, introduce the conscription to younger age, age uh, classes. Uh, for example, the class of 1914 wasn't due to actually be incorporated into the army till uh, approximately August, September of 1915, but they were called up in December 1914. By January 1915, the class of 1915, not due to be called up till 1916, was already in training, etc. So by the time the Battle of the Somme started, they were actually calling up the class of 1917. So you're talking 18-year-olds uh, being called in. The very, very first of the class of 1917 was uh, just arriving at the front. But the previous class had already had a year's experience, and the ones who were arriving on the at the front on the song, they'd already seen, ex at, the, at the least, they'd seen, they'd seen uh, battle experience at a uh, place like they done. And they weren't in the red and blue anymore, were they? Well, they were in light blue, weren't they? Well, the, what, in 1916, yeah, by that, by, by that point, they changed to the uh, light blue, later known as Horizon Blue. But uh, by the end of 1914, not the end of 1914, we're talking October 1914, supplies of the uniforms were getting low. Apart from anything, you've got masses and masses of uh, reservists being recalled. Yes, they've got their own uniform, but other, but looking at it another way, they've been civilians for a while. Some of them put the weight on and they can't fit in them uniforms anymore. So them uniforms get passed on to somebody else. So they need some new uniforms. They don't have enough for the red. Some of the dye came from Germany. They're not going to get the dye from Germany. So the red trousers, quite often replaced by dark blue. Uh, leather gaiters replaced by alpine style high leg um, putties, like the British were worn, uh, like the British wore up to the knees. 
Um, basically, the I, I always call the winter of 1914-1915 the French air sats winter because uh, the amount of equipment that they had, which they had to make make do and make do with, they had canvas ammunition pouches instead of leather ammunition pouches. We had a full range of tunics and um, uh, great coats, Any, anything from the from the issued iron blue all the way to uh, what they call English grey, which was supplied from England. I think I think it was blanket material from England. So you've got a full range of those. I mean, uh, Blaise Sendras in uh, The Severed Hand, he mentions uh, somebody wearing black trousers. He says there the, the, the were priests' uh, trousers acquired from uh, some seminary school. He says so they, they, they were at the front line wearing uh, priests' black trousers. <laughs> so they looked a mess overall. But they'd learnt a lot in, in 15, hadn't they? I mean, 15 is one of the worst years for the French. Uh, how had they come out of 15? What state were they in? I mean, because they'd had some terrible battles in Champagne and, and uh, Arras and Artois, yeah. yeah. I always forget its name, French name. <laughs> um, and there's a great book, the name of which I always forget and have forgotten again. Uh, but you reminded me of last time, but I can see from your blank expression, you forgot. Gary, what was it, mate? No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but but what, what, how would you describe the French army as it emerged from the trials of 1915? Again, we can't go into that, but what state was it in? It was a new army compared with the army that went into 1915. It was a new army that uh, adapted the tactics through mainly through uh, Artois, but they test them out in uh, Champagne. Um, new tactics, they were, they were using, instead of extended order, advancing straight into the machine guns, the classic First World War battle to, in most people's minds. They were using uh, modern tactics, fire and manoeuvre tactics, dash down, crawl, observe sites, fire, etc. Moving around in small, using small formation tactics where they, well, they've got around in groups of six. They'd uh, adapted the uh, versions of light machine guns. They'd taken on foreign weaponry when they couldn't uh, use their own, etc. So, And the, like I said, the grenadiers, they just worked on the grenades. They'd worked on uh, gas shells, etc. They were very, very, they were very advanced. What about the this... use of heavy, heavy artillery? Because we always think about the French. Uh, what about French artillery? Uh, the heavy artillery had moved on, hadn't it? There was a lot more use of heavy artillery. There was a hell of a lot of use of heavy artillery. I mean, you talk about the Second Battle of Artois is the highest use of um, artillery, the, the biggest bombardment that the world had ever seen up to that particular point. They just didn't seem to suffer from any shell shortages that the uh, British had the problem while during, during the period. Um, they were using, well, artillery tactics had advanced as well. Instead of just doing blanket bombardments over places, they developed the creeping barrage where the infantry would advance behind it. No, 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 Dave, Dave, no, Dave, Dave, the Canadians oh. developed the creeping barrage. And oh, every oh other, yeah, they invented it sorry, two years after the French used every, it, didn't they? Yeah. That's right. They invented the. <laughs> please don't. I mean, that's just so disrespectful to the Canadians. Sorry, they didn't that, call it creeping barrage. I'll let the Canadians have the creeping barrage term. They called it le barrage creepy. Creepy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I just say, Dave, now that I can get a word in, um, <laughs> the popular British view is that the, the, the Brits took over a quiet sector in the Somme. Uh, but, but actually, there was, there was French campaigns in that area, weren't there? I mean, even in, a, 
even in 1870. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 1870, you got uh, three major battles, all, all related to the same uh, outcome. It was uh, an attempt to relieve, to relieve Paris. But uh, you got Ferdinand's uh, Army de Nord um, going against the uh, German First Army, uh, who'd already fought at Villas Bretonneau, Amiens, the Roman road going towards Peron. Um, uh, then you've got the fighting up at Bapalm as the as Ferdherb tries to break down towards uh, Peron to actually relieve the siege of Peron, which has been ongoing since uh, the end of December. So you've got the Battle of Bapalm in, in uh, January 1871, which is actually a French victory, which they can't push because there's so many Germans in the area that they don't advance even further. So Peron, Peron eventually capitulates. The Somme River crossings haven't been captured. The Army de Nord can't move down on the bit of a forlorn hope, but it was, it was there was always a hope there that they would be able to get across the river and down to Paris, but they, but they didn't. So they moved on to safe quarters, safe ha, in the inverted commas quarters in uh, San Quentin. But they were pursued all the way by the First Army. Massive battle at St. Cantan. The Army de Nord is totally destroyed and, and uh, retreat up to the uh, fortresses around Lille, where, which never usually gets a mention, they actually uh, regroup and uh, within three, three, four weeks later, they're the same size as they were before Peron, but they never get called into action again. So that's the that's the fighting of 1877. Now, what, what about... Not in 1914, there's, uh, there's the uh, race to the sea battle sort of thing, isn't there, or whatever. Uh, there's a lot of battles in the area. Just, again, sketch out 14 and 15 for us, just so well, that we know. You've, you've got the advances uh, of August 1914, where the Germans are moving from the area of Combray towards, well, we're not heading towards Paris. But uh, you've got territorial divisions up near Combray, delaying them slightly. You got the 61st and 62nd, which at the time were revert. Can't even say it. Words gone. Reserve divisions. Say yes. Revert. I was going to say reverse divisions. Reserve divisions. They moved down from Arras and accidentally crossed into the German advance on the 28th of August up near Moisland and Bapalm. There's a massive battle there. Thousands of casualties. In fact, there's a cemetery. Uh, up there called the Cimetière de Chantet, which uh, they were buried in, the, which a lot of the victims were actually casualties, not victims. Casualties were buried in a sunken road, which they had to hide from the German machine gun fire. And now, that's not the end of it, though, is it? And just to, I'm, well, I'm no, moving that, that, to... this is just the very beginning. This is August. <laughs> but uh, then obviously the Germans are carry on the advance. They get so far, you've got the Battle of Man, blah, blah, blah. They get they get pushed all the way back. They get pushed beyond the Somme and then advance again. So September 1914, you've got the uh, second bombshell fighting in the area. Same area, you've got the, it's the, what they call the Battle of uh, Piccadilly, the Battle of uh, Albert, the first Battle of Albert, really. Um, as you say, it's the race to sea, so obviously the, Fighting actually starts south of the river. They're moving further and further up. They're going into uh, across the river. It's fighting around uh, Maricourt, La Boiselle. Uh, it doesn't quite reach as far as the uh, River Ankh yet, but uh, 
the fighting through September, Le Transloy, uh up towards Bapoma again. I mean, there's a um, ossuary at uh, Le Transloy, which has something like 7,000, 8,000 bodies buried in it from just two days action, one in August and one in September. So it shows the scale of the fighting that was up there. Sailor, sailor, sell. Um, Ronco, uh, those areas were absolute killing zones in 1914. Then the advance goes so far, goes across, you've got a lot of fighting near Longeval, uh, Montauban, Maricourt. Uh, the line tends to stabilise around that area a little um, until the following month, October, when the the Prussian Guard arrive further up further up north. Then you've got the first Battle of Ebertan, where they actually push across the Ankh and get towards uh, Serre. By the end of it, you've got the line as it would roughly be in 1916. There's no, further actions November 1914, December the 17th, 1914. Then when it was suddenly decided that uh, the French are going to launch a full full out um, offensive, basically from Bourne and Tamil all the way down to uh, the River Somme, which is absolutely is a disastrous result for about up to just up to Christmas Eve, constant fighting and just no man no man's land between Tietval and uh, Marico was absolutely littered with dead bodies. It's even it's even shown on German um, drawings. Uh, trench sketches and things like that actually should show French bodies in no man's land as part of uh, a feature of the land to uh, operate around. <laughs> now, that's no, that's quite extraordinary. The, the places that you're naming there resonate with the British. You, know, well, you mentioned yeah. Sierre, you mentioned Thiepval, and yet, you know, largely the British had no idea that there was any French activity in those areas. Well, well they, the first time got... that I ever went to the Somme, just kicking around in the fields. Oh, it's Frank French bullets. French bullets up um, in a ditch next to the Tietval Memorial. I found more French bullets than I found uh, British bullets. And I thought, why? This is, I'm going back 30 odd years here. This is one of the reasons why I end up eventually writing these books, because I wanted to answer that question for myself. Why? There's nowhere to give me that answer. So I had to find out for myself. <laughs> now, to, just to sum up 15, the fighting doesn't stop in 14. It goes on into 15. There's a local French offensive at Serre in June 15. There's uh, mine warfare all over the place, the glory hole. And yet when the British take over, we tend to say it's a quiet <laughs> sector. <laughs> <don't we? laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have said it was a quiet sector if I got shoved there, would you? <laughs> well, no, no, you've got I mean, Red on Ridge. Red on Ridge was uh, riddled with mine craters. I mean, there's some disastrous ones. The French, I think the French blew themselves up up on the Red on Ridge, and so did the Germans. Then, like you said, you got down towards uh, La Boiselle, where they were blowing each other up at the ranges of, what, 200 yards? Then further, just slightly further down in front of Free Corps. Then uh, the, uh, down near Montauban, more mines down there. Then you go south of the river, you've got even more. You've got Fay, you've got Dompierre. It's just mine warfare all the way up. 1915 was the real underground war. Up that area, apart from the Second Battle of Everton, up at uh, Set, and obviously Everton. <laughs> and the British take over in late 1915. July 1915, yeah. July 31st. Uh, do they take over the whole Somme front, or is that just a British perspective? They don't. No, do they, they just take over. Just take over part of the uh, northern section uh, from the area in front of uh, Goncourt down to. Uh, well, they actually take it over down to the River Somme. And, the uh, slightly, bit. Yeah. They, they, they 
pull back slightly later, but uh, they take it down to the uh, River Song down at uh, Fargney Mill because there's uh, plenty of stories of soldiers swimming in the river down that area, swimming towards the German lines. That area was a let, let and live and let live area because I think the Germans like doing the same so that nobody was shooting at anybody down in that area. Uh, the British actually also took over the area down further, down to uh, the Roman road between uh, Amiens and uh, Peron. They, oh. took, they, took over, they took over that area for a very, very short period of time at the end of 1915. But not, but then, then went back. If you, if yeah, you the, two, the two divisions that were down there ended up getting moved over to Salonika. So no, I'm not too 100% certain the reason why they took over that area, but... Uh, I, I didn't know about that. I, I, I think the French just that. wanted a little break. <laughs> and we'll be able to put some maps up, won't we, Pete, for the podcast? <laughs> Thank you, Gary, yes. <laughs> when you've told me, when I've forgotten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gary's in charge of the memory. Can, can I, you, you mentioned something that intrigued me there, and it's live and let live. Now, that's often, that is often seen as a French thing. Briefly, just explain to me and Gary, who are often puzzled, what live and let live is. It's very, it's a James Bond film, is it? No, that's <laughs> It's uh, just a case of you've got two enemies in the same place who both had bad experiences in the in, in the past. They don't want to kill kill each other anymore. And so if you're peaceful with them, they'll be peaceful with you, and everybody else gets on with life. Uh, Gary's favourite <laughs> example of that is where Gary Gallipoli. What was uh, your favourite thing there? I have a no well. idea. The French, <laughs> the the well that was shared. Oh, the by well. Them. Sorry, yes. No, in the French sector at Gallipoli. Uh, where, but again, if you went there at a different time of day, they would shoot at you. So, so yeah. there were rules around it. Yeah, they had rules. That's that's entirely right. I knew I could jog your little memory there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> now, I was I was miles away. Now we're not. We're not. I, I thought I heard eating, so I wonder whether you were having your breakfast. Uh, <laughs> now um, we're, we're not going to go through how the British and French came to launch the thing, but it was meant to be the British as the uh, junior partners, and it became the British as the senior partners. Although still, always the French are equals, if not superior. Really, in reality, we're going to ignore all the sort of strategic side, but let's look at the the success of the French assault on the first of of July, which. Um, that they employed something like 732 heavy guns, uh, same number of field artillery, 1,100 trench mortars, 8 million high-quality shells. And what's the difference between a British shell and uh, and a French shell, Gary? This is a bit of a test for you. In Which one's that? The French one. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though, isn't it, uh, uh, Dave? The, the, the French shells went bang. Well, yeah, they were high quality. Uh, because the, the and this is worth remembering because it makes the barrage more effective. Now we're going to. I, th I think we'll have a little test of what you've told us. So uh, we're going to get. If, if you could uh, invigilate for us, Dave, we're going to look at why the French attacks north and south of the Somme River on seven thirty on first July were a success. Now I'll bagsy the easy one, and you see what you think, uh, Dave. Uh, the use of heavy artillery to destroy. The German deep dugouts. They had more heavy artillery, and they were better targeted to actually take air the deep dugouts that the British artillery failed to do. Would that be correct? That is correct. Yes. I got, it from, I got it from your books. So <laughs> well, what was I going to say? No, then was I? Yeah, they had massive railway guns. The uh, super heavies way back. There were ma masses of artillery, heavy artillery. So heavy artillery. Yeah. Gary, what would yeah. you like well, I say to say? super heavy artillery. Also, yeah, which we, we did a pod. We, we, uh, we remember we did Cleave. Yeah, we did. 
Uh, but yep. that was 1917, no, 1918. British, slow off the mark. Go on, Gary, you, you think of what you've thought of. Well, they also concentrated the bombardment on the uh, German first lines and devastated the German defences. Yes, yeah. As opposed to the British, who spread it across two systems. Two systems, yeah. not two lines. Not two, not two lines, it was two trench systems, yeah. They also weren't concentrating on just trying to destroy wire. They were, destroy, they were destroying the actual positions behind the wire uh, with full intention of once they've got through, once they've got those positions, they'll move on to the next positions, as will the artillery. Now, can I can I put forward the one we've talked about already? Le barrage du creep. <laughs> uh, the infantry go over while it's still being while it's still being hit. The infantry move into that position, and at a prior priorly set time, the artillery moves on to the next position, as does the infantry. Behind the infantry, they've got the what they call the uh, netoyers, the cleaners. What's well, your the next one, Dave, you've mentioned this earlier, that they used lightly equipped troops uh, who advanced in small groups. You said taking, six. Taking all advantage of any cover of rush defences, and then they followed that up by heavily equipped mopping up teams, which I assume is the cleaners you're referring to. Yes. Far advanced uh, from the British. It's, it's, it's two completely different approaches. We're talking stormtrooper tactics that uh, a lot of the British histories make a massive deal about with the Germans using it. Well, the French were using it end of 1915 into 1916. It was a common, a common attacking tactic used by the French. That That is a brilliant point. Uh, and, and to back that up, uh, the infiltrate, they, they concentrated on tactically significant objectives rather than making a general advance along a line like the British did. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah, they, Prior to the attack, they chose what the what the objectives were going to be. Usually, the reasonable, reasonably attainable objectives. They'll attack those, and then they'll concentrate on the next objective. Instead of trying to think, "Oh, we'll take this massive area of land. We'll take this little bit of land. Once we've captured that, we'll move on to the next bit." The overall picture, yeah, it'd be great if we managed to get the big bit. But if we only get the little bit, it's still a success. That sounds a bit like bite and hold. Uh, yeah, but there's not the hold. It's the th thought of moving on constantly. All it's right. the bite and bite again. But bite, and if you can't bite again, you stay. <laughs> bit, bit like you with a chocolate eclair, Gary. <laughs> and if you can't bite again, you kick them in the ghoulies. <laughs> now, I've got a quote. Um, we're not doing quotes this time, but this quote is to sum up the success of the French on the first day, because they attain all their objectives, I think, according to one David. In some cases, Omar. they exceed them. Uh, No, yeah. I said they didn't. <laughs> oh, God, damn. There's two oh. 98% successful. Ah, <laughs> there's, two that, areas, there's two areas that they actually don't succeed. I'm afraid that's good enough for me. Uh, <laughs> now, we can't go into detail, but so let's just take it as 98% successful. But this quote is from Joseph Foy of 265th Infantry Regiment. Regiment d'Infantry? Yeah, just call them a regiment, <laughs> it's easier. My, it is a lot I can read the... French, but my, speak, my spoken French isn't brilliant. <laughs> Bad. That's on Kool-Aid. <laughs> my spoken English ain't that great. <laughs> this is what Foy says. Our artillery preparation was wonderful. It completely destroyed the German defences and our assault waves managed to cross the lines without much resistance. Only an enemy counter barrage claimed a few victims. As soon as the first wave had set off, we advanced over the heavily cratered ground, ready to help out those in front. The enemy continued to send over a heavy barrage, so we dug in when we reached the outskirts of Fay, 
to avoid taking too many casualties. The shells fell very close by, but we were right at the bottom of our trench and they didn't touch us. So that's just gives you an idea of the success. I've no idea where Faye is, but I'm sure it's a village somewhere. South now, of the river. His regiment actually suffered from 37 dead and 198 wounded that day, but that's being nerdy, isn't it? You nerdy <laughs> bastard. <laughs> or was it 199? <laughs> <laughs> Gary, bad Gary. <laughs> now, um, so it was a great success. Uh, what, 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 it, it, what do you put it down to? Artillery and infantry tactics. I'd say both artillery. Yeah, in a combination, yeah. mainly artillery. I'd say <laughs> because the two places where they failed were, or the two places where the artillery was actually not up to scratch. Well, the. Uh, the, the yeah, the, the, we bet the, the British failed because their artillery wasn't good enough, except in the south, where they were greatly helped by the French. And right at the join between the British and the French is one of the places where the French fell. <laughs> and British. Now, um, <laughs> so overall, the, the French were a success. The British were a relative failure, definitely, uh, even in the south then. Well, so, no, uh, they were more successful in the south, you could say, the British. The, more successful than the I mean, British the French, in the north. Yeah, yeah. What, what I'm talking about, the French failure in that area, we're talking 100 yards of a wood. They fell short by about <clears> 100, 200 yards in the top corner of uh, a wood near America. That's it. But it caused them to have a lot of issues and uh, severe fighting for about a week afterwards, a lot of skirmishing in that area. Now, we haven't got too much time, so I'm, I'll just sum up a few things that I noticed from your book. The first fortnight uh, seems to be... North of the river, they're hampered by the British failure, relative failure, yes. and that consolidation is their main focus north of the river while they wait for the British to sort themselves out, I presume. Yes. Uh, but there were attacks towards Hem. Look at your maps, boys and girls, if I remember to put them up. Uh, from 5th of July to, to clear the German artillery threat from the Hem Plateau. Uh, so that's a, an example of a, of a tactical objective that is triggering attacks. But it also triggers vicious fighting round, round the hem plateau, round hem. Uh, would, can you, do you want to make any comments on that? Well, the hem plateau was... Uh, uh, that's north of the river, isn't it? Yes, just north of the river. Just, yeah. Yeah, but uh, south of the river, they're yeah. advancing too fast. They're advancing <laughs> too fast. So the hem, hem plateau was uh, a threat to the, the advance on the south. So they had to eradicate that threat as soon as possible because uh, the Floco Plateau was very, very exposed. It's exposed from the hem plateau, the artillery on the hem plateau. It's under observation from uh, La Maisonette, near just south of Peron, and also uh, Mont Saint-Canton, which was artillery positions and artillery observation. So the advance south of the river was very, very much under threat until the hem plateau could be uh, eradicated. Now, generally, one thing I got very clearly from your book is that south of the river, one of the biggest problems is ge geographic, geographical, uh, in that the, that stupid river bends round. The elbow, so it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, the elbow, yeah. Uh, <laughs> which means that the French are advanced. They're advancing very fast, but they're also advancing with the Somme on their left and suddenly the Somme right in front of them and the yes. hills of Peron in front of them as well. Gradually, the progress dies to an end, doesn't it? And do you want to talk about the fighting of villages like... Uh, if you'd be ready to talk on the high summer part, uh, we've got to sort this out because I'm doing all the talking there for, from me to... So you get ready to do the high summer. But can you, uh, Dave, tell us a bit about Biash and La Maisonette? Because th there seems to be appalling fighting around those places. 
Well, well, and we, we British have never heard of them. La Maisonette was uh, one of the main targets in immediately south because, like I've just mentioned earlier, the artillery observation that uh, you, could, you could see everywhere from it. Uh, so that was one of the targets that they had to eradicate as soon as possible, which accounts for the rapid advance in the south. Um, by the 2nd of July, the, uh, the south of the river, by the 2nd of July, the uh, aerial observation was saying that there the were no Germans in sight. They're gone. But uh, they're saying, why didn't they push forward even faster? I said, because they couldn't because of the Hem Plateau up in the north. So they had to advance a bit more cautiously. Cautiously meaning like major advances every four days or so. You push forwards towards, for example, Berlin Santerre, which is uh, famous for Alan Seeger. Uh, hellishly fighting there with the, uh, the Regiment Marsh, the Legion of Tranger, the, the Foreign Legion. Uh, on, the on the 4th of July, I think about eight, eight Americans. You've got uh, Alan Seeger, who's the famous one who died there. Why is he famous? Sorry, he's a, a well-known writer and poet. I mean, I don't, I don't, not really do for poets, but there's one poem that he likes that he wrote that I like. Uh, but somebody else who died with him, who was, should be equally famous, was uh, fellow called Siegfried Narvit, who uh, another American, another New Yorker, who was a professor of philosopher, who was living in Paris at the time that the war broke out, and he was killed alongside. Um, Seeger, and he's probably buried in the same place at Lyon, uh, French cemetery. Fine French name, Siegfried. Siegfried, yeah. Siegfried Norwitz, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, I mean, the, that fight in there absolutely fascinates me. The first way of getting old-fashioned style battle, went across in extended order, cut down in swathes in the uh, corn, didn't break through, second, second wave, went through using the proper tactics small unit tactics and actually got through, grenaded the hell out of the German front line and then uh, managed to break through. Prisoners taken in the first line from the, fir from the first assault uh, heard the commotion going on shorts behind them, most of them carrying Algerian daggers. So they decided to shank the guards. That's a sh, not a W, by the way. So they shanked the guards, broke free. So the uh, front lines were being attacked from both sides and then they managed to get through. You move on to... Uh, I'll have yeah. to look that word up. <laughs> Which one? Shank. 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 <laughs> yeah, I go know to, the other one. Go to prison and find that one out. <laughs> Both of them probably. Mind you, I think the other one had gotten free from the guards as well, if they'd pushed that one. But uh, carry on moving on to uh, fighting around Biash. Managed to push through there, but then the Germans launched a counter-attack shoved them back a bit, and there's hellish, hellish fighting over near the uh, Fort under Biash, which was a fortified area up near the river, surrounded by machine guns to the north. They just couldn't get through it, couldn't eradicate it. But then eventually, uh, with a little bit of deception, the French managed to capture it. Move on to Perot. Um, what was it? La I always want to call it Malmaison. <laughs> similar, similar story, though. Move on to the hill of... Uh, Maisonette, big fortified farmhouse and a chateau. Uh, French managed to get through to it at first, then they got pushed back. And uh, throughout the rest of the battle, it uh, changed hands several times. I think it changed hands about four times in one day. That both sides wanted it that much because no. the, the observation from the top meant that the French could look out over Peron, over the river, across the uh, flat 
planes across to the other side. Whereas the Germans could uh, move, they could watch everybody. They could see every movement from uh, there all across the Floco Plateau, all the way back to the old 1st of July front lines. Now, one of the points that we make is that the, the battle isn't only about the 1st of July and, and uh, the weeks preceding, uh, following. And, and actually, the fight in, in that area goes on for the rest of the campaign, doesn't it, Dave? And, and we move into high summer now. And uh, Allied progress to the south of the battlefield, coupled with the British failure to the north, it's created a dangerous, dangerous salient, doesn't it? And it meant that the French would have to attack east at this point, pushing out from Hardecourt-Bois towards Goulemont and Maurepas. So tell us a bit about the attacks in the high summer. They're not so successful, are they? No, by this time we're uh, hitting quite a few problems. I mean, the 30th of July was uh, the worst day for the French on the Somme. Uh, Oops, I see my notes helpfully put 20th of July. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first attack there was the 20th. That was a failure, but the worst one was a a little bit later. It's just (laughs) a matter of... Matter of judgment, not a mistake, then. <laughs> so, when you say the, uh, the worst, Dave, on the 30th of July, do you mean in terms of the casualties suffered? Casualties and complete and utter failure, yeah. There was a complete artillery. This, we're talking uh, just off the Hem Plateau area again, still fighting for this area. Why, why um, was um, it so bad? Why, was it just a, the, the Germans had moved a, up their reserves, or, or is it that the French had changed their tactics? Or There was or a was complete it... artillery failure for some reason. Somebody, somebody high up cocked up. There was an artillery failure in the area. The French attacked over. The German artillery was still fully operational in the area, hitting them from uh, Hemwood, just behind Hemwood, and plastered no man's land as soon as they attacked. So, And the artillery hadn't softened up. They'd done a British tactic of trying to bombard the entire area, flooded it with gas, and uh, basically just hit random random areas without... targeting specifics. Uh, so the French ended up attacking over into no man's land, got cut to pieces in no man's land. All communications were lost. The panic, people, soldiers trying to get back to their own lines. Nobody knew where anybody was. You can imagine the dust, the confusion, everything. The French are firing on the French. The Germans are bombarding the hell out of no man's land. Nobody can move. Uh, yard for yard, casualties, French casualties in that area were actually worse than anywhere that the British suffered on the 1st of July. But we're only talking an area of covering about two miles. So it never they, really gets recorded. But they are grinding their way forward, aren't they? Very, very slowly, yeah. Further and further, further up to the north, we're hitting the woodlands. We're going through uh, heavily defended woods. We're going th- uh, attacking German uh, second and third line systems. Third line wasn't completely developed at the time, but by the time they were reaching there, they put a hell of a lot of effort into it. So now, you, you're talking belts and belts of barbed wire, which can't be cleared by the shells. You've got stiffer German resistance. You've got German uh, divisions that have been moved up from the Merse, moved up from Verdun at this point, fighting in the north. Well, It's just <laughs> as, it's, it's as bad as anything the British are facing, if not worse. It is. What did, it is. And what do the Germans always do? Counter-attack. Counter-attack. <laughs> counter-attack, counter-attack, counter-attack all the time, yeah. Also, they're the ones who are defending these villages, which they've been uh, fortifying. For a long time, mentioned in 1914, Sale, Sale, Sale. I think it's the, blo- the bloodiest village on the entire Somme battlefield because they ended up fighting house to house throughout there, and it took them three months to get through it. And that's one village. Now, <laughs> uh, again, I've got to keep it going just because of time. But um, in autumn, September, 
they, they re the, the attacks just seem to just get worse and worse. They begin a series of attacks on the 3rd of September. Uh, and they have, north of the river, they have some success in the village. Is it La Forêt? I don't. This is this is typical. I wrote a book about the Somme. I don't know any of this. This is the indictment of British historians. It's a Not tiny just, little hamlet, is La Forest, Yeah, their progress is held up by British failures further north, isn't it? And and then there's another huge attack on the 12th of September. A lot and of the French more, attacks. More fighting, hard fighting. A lot of the French attacks north of the river are actually in support of the British or just to keep it going. South of the river, bear in mind, by this point, we're talking 12th September, they've already hit They've already hit that elbow in the river. They can't advance any further, apart from the 10th Army attack, which they launch on, is it 3rd of September? Is a different angle where they extend the, the battlefield further down. But north of the river, it's just stagnated. It's... Um, one of the original aims of the battle was to kill as many Germans as possible. And that's how it's working. It's a battle of attrition and it's wearing the Germans down. In fact, it's up north, it's, it's the north, the area of Saint Pierre Vats, that uh, the Germans came closest to actually breaking. The Ger if you read German reports, if I could, for example, in Jack Sheldon's books, he, uh, it, it's mentioned that uh, the Germans nearly broke on the Somme in that area. So that's one of the other reasons why they're pushing and pushing and pushing. They're doing what people say about Verdun in reverse. They're trying to bleed the German army white. <laughs> Brilliant. Now it goes on, 6th of October, they try a big attack, but bad weather, the weather breaks, doesn't it? That, and oh, then the weather was terrible, yeah. And then, the, the, I, I'm, I now I'm, I'm going to, in a sense, bring it to the end, in the sense of vicious, vicious fighting round, Chong, I can't pronounce it, Chong. 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 Yeah. Or is that the northern way of it? <laughs> short. All right. It's, short. Like, it's a southern, cause there's terrible fighting around that area, isn't it? And that it all goes on until the 17th of December. And I was like, when people talk about this as the British battle, when did we jack in? Oh, hang on. 18th of November, the, the some battle ends. Yeah, that's, what's that's a well known fact. <laughs> I know that fact, Gary. 18th, I'm just asking you to make sure it was 18th. <laughs> But, but but they carry on till the 17th of December. That's a month of extra fighting, uh, particularly, I think, round Chon. But uh, and, and it is not, is it, what, what's Alex's book? 141 days. Yeah. This is yeah, everything, everything claims 141 days, yeah. Well, it's not, it's 171. Well, I always believe that uh, a battle's finished when all the participants say <laughs> that it's finished. <laughs> yeah, well, usually. It was an Anglo-French battle which was originally going to be led by the French. So surely the battle ends when the French say it was. And Nivelle called the uh, battle off on the 17th of December. Nivelle had taken over. We haven't talked yeah, about the French. Yeah, Foch, Foch had been sacked by this point. <laughs> well, now, five days now, earlier. So it's your view that the French were fighting at an intense rate right the way through till the, the uh, 17th of December. It's a murderous battle. Uh, the French suffered, Gary, how many casualties? You, you like casualties. I'm, I always forget them. Uh, I don't mean forget them. I mean forget the figures. Whoops. Well, the French suffer over two hundred and two thousand casualties, of which more than sixty six thousand were dead. Now, if you compare that to the British, the British are, uh, are estimated to be four hundred and twenty thousand casualties, with one hundred and twenty five thousand dead. So the French are very, very much, you know, get, uh, contributing to the, the Battle of the Somme. And let's not forget, at the same time, they're fighting at Verdun. You know, it's a yeah. massive contribution. And uh, the, the French are suffering a, day, a, a daily average of 200 more dead per day more. in some area, more 
that they're suffering at Verdun. It's incredible. You've also got to bear in mind, though, that uh, that reflects the tactics as well, because as you were saying, saying the, the French did a big com commitment to the battle, but you've uh, got to think about the, the amount of divisions that were involved in it. Figure was, was it uh, something like 50, 50, 50 divisions involved in the Battle of the Somme? One, two, three lots. Yeah, I think it was about, I think in the Battle of the Somme was 50, divi 50 or 51 divisions involved. The French committed 48 divisions, while at the same time, like Gary was just saying, committing 66 or 69 divisions to uh, the Dunn. Uh, I think this is a great point that you two have collectively made. Uh, it's not big and clever to get more casualties. No. Um, and actually, it, it, the, the, the French effort, I think you're saying, Dave, is equal. It's just that the British effort was more incompetent and therefore they suffered more casualties whilst carried out the same level of operations. Yeah, but that's what they, it's not. It's not, you know, it's not that they were um, doing more in some senses. They're doing about the same. It's just that their tactics were not as well developed. This is they're, they're basically in the stage the French were in early 1915, I, I would argue. Yeah, they were definitely good 12 months behind the French tactically. Um, the other thing to, to look at on the scale of the com comparative scale between the two is that the French actually, by the end of the battle, were holding a longer line. The British were just on the Somme for square meterage. They actually took more land. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to say, I, Gary, you wanted to make a point about the damage the French did to the Germans because that, that's surely one way of analysing who's doing work. Uh, yeah, I mean, if not, you look... we're not disparaging the British, by the way. We're just saying they're at a different stage of development. That's what our point is, uh, Gary. What, what what did the French do? Well, they certainly uh, inflicted severe damage over the whole course of the battle, not just, you know, the early parts of the battle. So uh, they captured over 41,000 German prisoners, 275 guns and mortars. Now, that's always an index of successful operations if you're capturing guns and 535 machine guns. Blimey. Now, what? so this is an enormous, it's, it is an Anglo-French battle. Um why don't why don't we remember it as the British, uh, Dave? Are we just stupid, or as a, or, or what, what? Why don't we why don't we pay proper tribute to the French? Dunkirk, nineteen forty. <laughs> Is that so, it? Uh, that's the fast answer, I think, because of you, the you, British got, attitude we've towards got about, the French. We've got five minutes. You you think that the the, the the British don't think the French are any good after Dunkirk? The French think we deserted them at Dunkirk, by the way. Yes, I know. And there were also, I've got reports of uh, some of them wondering why they were getting off the uh, boats at, um, in England when they thought they were going to be just taken off and dropped further down the coast, continuing the fire. Yeah, I don't agree with that, by the way, but that's, no. the, that's the attitude that I've seen quite a lot. The cheese-eating surrender monkeys, etc. type. Well, attitude. that has... That has to be stamped on that attitude. Now, I'd like to congratulate you personally, because over the internet and your books, you've done more than anyone almost uh, that I could think of to stamp on that, uh, which is which has been great. What do you think? My point would be that uh, publishers don't, they, they want books to be short. I know when I wrote my song book, I was told to keep it quiet about the Germans. They were in the battle as well, and the <laughs> French. Because they don't want the book to get too long. They don't want it complicated. They want a, an easy narrative drive. Uh, would you say that I'm just a swine and a bastard not to have uh, sort of ignored the publishers and done it? Or, or, or would you no, say that, or do you understand? 
I understand completely because I was actually a headhunter to write these books. These are the books that I would have wanted to write several years ago, but I'd come across the same attitude. I didn't think I could. Then all of a sudden, Nigel Cave said to me, I want to write the, I want somebody to write these books. Will you do it? And I went, no. And my wife said, yes, you will. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, you, you're probably looking forward to getting back to, to the battlefields. Do you take tours uh, or, or do you just go yourself? Uh, you, you must be looking forward to the chance to get back there. I'm absolutely, I'm like a heroin addict who's gone uh, cold turkey. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like Gary with food? <laughs> <laughs> Don't mention cold turkey to Gary, he'd eat it. <laughs> Now, um, I just want to finish up by saying thank you very much. Uh, I want to re-emphasise your book because people should buy it. The one I know best, you, I know you've written at least two, is uh, is the uh, the Somme 1916 touring the French sector, which is in the Battleground uh, Somme series. It's uh, available on Amazon or any other source. It's under your, your posh name of David Amara. Uh, have you got any others you want to mention that people should be seeking out and buying? You've got about well, the one which I'm actually more proud about than that one is the uh, second book, the uh, from Sare to the River Somme. All oh, right, <laughs> the French on the Somme from Sare to the River Somme, 1914 to June 1916, which covers the story from the beginning of the war to the well, it actually ends on June June the 30th, 1916. So I think we I think we might even come back to that uh, in a year or so because that sounds interesting and I know I've got that book as well because you sent it me to review and I don't think I did. No, you didn't. <laughs> I, I trust there's no bitterness there, David. The first no, no, the no. first the first review was so favourable that uh, I'd run out of praise words. There's actually uh, another two books to be done on the 1916 battle, which I'm doing similar idea, but similar idea to the first one, but uh, more detail, one for the north of the river and one for the south of the river. Sounds great. So Sounds they'll, great. they'll be about two years down the line yet. Look forward to them. Gary, any last words about uh, your contact with David? No, I've you... thoroughly enjoyed it. I, um, I I must admire a man who, who has the confidence to wear lime green headphones. They're not um, mine. <laughs> my son, oh, we all say that oh they're not mine <laughs> no <laughs> not mine <laughs> all right it's, it's been, been an absolute pleasure david it has thank you cheers lads cheers mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast 
for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?